bringing you the latest in tax credit news. This is Tax Credit Tuesday with your host, Michael Novogratik. The legislative challenges have been significant. We very much need the legislation. we got to produce housing. We're still in a very volatile industry. It's a challenging atmosphere for almost anyone. We can't get all these mixed signals and messages. If he doesn't have a bipartisan bill, nothing's going to happen. Alternative energy is still very expensive. Hello, I'm Michael Novogratik, and this is Tax Credit Tuesday. Today is Tuesday, July 24th, 2012. I'll begin this week's podcast with another update on tax reform, as well as an update on small business tax legislation and extension of the Bush tax cuts. Then, in this week's historic tax credit discussion, I'll discuss a pair of private letter rulings in which the IRS discusses the aggregation of buildings that would be considered a project for purposes of the Federal Historic Tax Credit's Tax Simpuse Property Test. I also have a legislative update regarding the Rehabilitation of Public Schools Act, a bill that would enable private developers to use the historic tax credit to access private capital to renovate public schools. In this week's Renewable Energy discussion, I'll share an overview of an interesting study that found that the solar investment tax credit generates about $2,200 in benefits to the federal government for each $1,000 in tax credits. That translates into a 10% in total rate of return to the federal government. I'll also review the findings of a report released by NREL, the National Renewable Energy Laboratory, about the financing and market implications of the expiration of the Section 1603 cash grant program. In our New Markets Tax Credit segment, I'll review some of the key dates for the 2000 round application round that are upcoming this week and next. I'll also review the latest QEI issuance report from the CDFI Fund and alert listeners to the opportunity to submit comments on the CDE application form. And finally, in the Local Housing Tax Credit section of this week's podcast, I'll discuss a proposal released last week that supports the creation of a new federal renter's tax credit program. So if you're ready, let's get started. In general news, last week, the Senate voted on a bill that would give a 20% tax credit to companies that transfer overseas jobs back to the United States. And the cost would be offset by limiting tax deductions for companies that outsource jobs and business activities. As expected, the bill was defeated by a mostly party-line vote of 56 to 42. This week, the primary focus is expected to be the different proposals to extend the so-called Bush tax cuts. The House is expected to vote to pass a one-year extension of all 2001 and 2003 tax cuts. Senate lawmakers are expected to push for extension of the tax cuts only for individuals with incomes over $200,000 and for families with incomes over $250,000. As such, I do know that it does continue to be considered extremely unlikely that Congress will come to an agreement with respect to the Bush tax cuts until and if, not that it will, but no earlier than a post-election lame duck session, and quite possibly not, in, not even until early next year. Nonetheless, the Action Campaign reports that a broad-based business-led coalition continues to urge Congress to extend the set of tax provisions that expired at the end of 2011, 
such as the new markets tax credit, as well as other tax provisions that are set to expire at the end of this year. The campaign also believes there's still a good chance that an extension of the 9% minimum tax credit rate for the local housing tax credit could be included in such a bill. I also note that we've learned that the Senate Finance Committee will meet regarding extenders on Wednesday, July 25th, so that's tomorrow. As always, I'll be following the developments in Congress this week, so to stay current on the latest votes and the latest tidbits, I invite you to follow me on Twitter. Now, turning to tax reform, tax reform hearings continued last week with a House Ways and Means Committee hearing about tax reform and the manufacturing sector. On July 19th, Chairman Dave Camp said that the hearing was an opportunity to look more closely at how comprehensive tax reform might affect manufacturers' ability to expand and create jobs. This week, the Senate Finance Committee is going to hold a hearing entitled Education, Tax Incentives, and Tax Reform. The committee is going to hear from witnesses that include the president of Montana State University and the director of tax issues at the Government Accountability Office. In historic tax credit news, last week, the Internal Revenue Service released a pair of private letter rulings, or PLRs, in which the agency determined that three buildings would be considered one project for purposes of the Federal Historic Tax Credit's tax-exempt use property test. In this case, the buildings occupy the same site and are being rehabilitated under a common plan that calls for shared facilities and amenities. Now, the taxpayer had planned to rehabilitate the structures concurrently, but was unable to finance such a large project during the recession, so the renovations of each building commenced at different times. To qualify rehabilitation expenditures for the historic tax credit, the portion of the property leased to tax unit entities may not exceed more than 50% of net rentable floor space. This means that if the virus had found each building to be a separate project, then the developer would have been more severely limited in its ability to lease the buildings to tax entities. Fortunately for the taxpayer, the IRS ruled that the buildings would constitute one project and that the property could include all of the net rental, rentable floor space in all three buildings for purposes of me- measuring qualification under this test. Now, it's important to remember that PLRs are based solely on the facts presented by the taxpayer and they cannot, so they, again, they cannot be used or cited as precedents. However, they are worth reviewing because they provide a glimpse into the IRS decision-making process. You can find the text of the PLRs at www.historictaxcredits.com. And additionally, my partner Charlie Ruda in our Boston office discusses these PLRs in more detail in the August issue of the Novogratz Journal of Tax Credits. In the meantime, if you have any questions about the rulings, give them a call at 617-330-1920. Now let's turn to Congress. Last week, on July 19th, Congressman Mike Turner and Russ Carnahan introduced a bill that would enable the historic tax credit to be used to renovate older public schools. Current law, as you may know, contains a restriction on the prior use of a property that limits the ability of local governments to partner with private developers to rehabilitate older public schools through the use of the historic tax credit. H.R. 6151, the Rehabilitation of Public Schools Act, would remove this prior use restriction from the historic tax credit, and this would enable local governments to partner with private developers on school renovations. H.R. 6151 might sound familiar. It's a companion bill to Senate Bill 1685. That bill was introduced in the Senate in October. 
Longtime listeners may recall that the Senate bill was introduced by Senators Mark Warner and Jim Webb. And our real longtime listeners may recall that now Majority Leader Eric Cantor introduced a similar bill back in November of 2009. Now, getting back to the bill, according to the Department of Education's National Center for Education Statistics, 28% of all public K-12 schools were built before 1950. Supporters say this bipartisan and bicameral legislation would incentivize the renovation of older K-12 public schools and would help spur local job creation. Some of the organizations on board, National Trust for Historic Preservation, Preservation Action, Heritage Ohio, and First Focus Campaign for Children. To discuss the bill and other current events in historic preservation, I also want to invite you to join other tax credit professionals at Novogratz National Historic Tax Credit Conference coming to Louisville, Kentucky on September 6th and 7th. Once again, September 6th and 7th in Louisville, Kentucky for the Novogratz National Historic Tax Credit Conference. In energy tax credit news, a study published last week by the U.S. Partnership for Renewable Finance finds that the Solar Investment Tax Credit, or ITC, can deliver a 10% of total rate of return to taxpayers on the government's initial investment. The U.S. Partnership for Renewable Finance is a program of the American Council on Renewable Energy, of which Novogratz and Company is a member. The study is titled Paid in Full, and it examines the cash flows generated by tax revenues on solar leases and power purchase agreements. The findings show, for example, that a $10,500 tax credit for a residential system can provide a $22,882 nominal benefit to the government over the life of the solar asset. Similarly, the study found that a $300,000 commercial solar credit can create a $677,000 nominal benefit in a similar time period. Now, as a side note, the study's primary author, Connie Chern, is a senior associate with the Structured Finance Group at SolarCity, which created the models for the study based on industry data. And prior to joining SolarCity, Connie provided audit tax, financial modeling, and advisory services as a manager for a national public accounting firm. Who was that public accounting firm? Of course, Novogratz and Company. You can find a copy of the study for download at www.energytaxcredits.com. If you have comments on the study, please send us an email to cpas at novaco.com. And once again, good work, Connie. Now, let's turn to a report that the National Renewable Energy Laboratory, NREL, put out last month about the financing and market implications of the expiration of the Section 1603 cash grant program. The report is titled, Section 1603 Treasury Grant Expiration, Industry Insight on Financing and Market Implications. This report says that the cash grant program has supported the significant deployment of new renewable power capacity during its short life. According to NREL, the program freed developers from having to rely on equity investors at a time when the number of renewable energy tax credit investors dropped from 20 to 5. The report also asserts that the program reduced the cost of energy production by limiting many of the fees associated with investment tax credit and production tax credit transactions. The report's author argues that the program's expiration could potentially affect the renewable energy market in some of the following ways. One, smaller or less established renewable power developers may 
have more difficulty attracting capital and completing their projects, the result of which may be industry consolidation as larger developers acquire smaller firms. Two, projects relying on newer or innovative technologies may slow because many tax equity investors are adverse to technology risk. And third, the cost of developing renewable energy projects may increase due to fees and costs associated with tax credit transactions. Now, the researchers based their analysis on information that financial executives active in the renewable energy industry provided during conference panel discussions, presentations, direct interviews, and email correspondences. For full disclosure, I'll note that as far as I know, none of that information came from me. The report notes that the true effect of the end of the Section 1603 program on renewable energy projects remains to be seen, and that further analysis will be forthcoming. Now, I'd be interested in your thoughts on the observations made in the report. Please send your comments to cpas at novaco.com. And, of course, we'll post any future reports from NREL on the Renewable Energy Tax Credit Resource Center website as soon as they become available. And if you have questions about how the Section 1603 cash grant program expiration could affect your renewable energy development plans, I encourage you to contact my partner, Tony Grapponi, at 617-330-1920 or send an email to tony.grapponi at novaco.com. That's T-O-N-Y period G-R-A-P-P-O-N-E at novaco.com. In new market tax credit news, now that we've had a few days to digest all the information released by the City 5 Fund with the opening of the 10th application round for the new market tax credit, it's a good time to review some upcoming dates over the next two weeks. Most notably, this week, the City 5 Fund is going to hold two conference calls. The first is scheduled for today, Tuesday, July 24th, and the second will be held on Thursday, July 26th. And then next week, on July 31st, Novagrad and Company will present a New Markets Tax Credit Application webinar. And you can sign up for this webinar online at www.novaco.com events. I also note that if you're interested in applying for New Market Tax Credits, you have to have a CDE formed, or at least a formed and applied for, certification status by August 3rd. So remember that August 3rd date if you don't already have a qualified CDE. Also, next week, we're going to publish the August issue of the Novogratz Journal of Tax Credits, and it's going to feature an article by my partner, Brad Elphick. He's in our Atlanta office. And in the article, he summarizes some of the key changes that have been made to the application in this round. And if you're not a subscriber, you can get a free sample copy of the Journal of Tax Credits by calling 415-356-7960 or simply send an email to products at novaco.com. And in the meantime, I've posted a selection of Brad's findings on my blog. If you want to read it, go to novogradic.wordpress.com. And if you need help with your new market task for application, please contact Novogradic and Company. Feel free to reach me directly at michael.novogradic at novaco.com. I urge you to contact us sooner than later, and I remind you once again that you have until August 3rd to apply for CDE status. Now, let's turn to existing awards usage. Earlier this month, the City of Fifern released its monthly update to its ongoing Qualified Equity Investment Issuance Report. The report identifies the dollar amount of allocation authority that's been issued to investors and the amount remaining to be issued to investors. In June, 
approximately $250 million if QEIs were finalized. And this is on par with the amount that was finalized the previous month in May. The amount still available in New Market Tax Allocation Authority is theoretically about $6.1 billion as of July 1st. I say theoretically because much of this allocation is already officially or unofficially committed to specific projects or borrowers. That said, if you're looking for help in finding an allocation or help in closing a transaction, I encourage you to contact one of my partners, Annette Stevenson in our Cleveland, Ohio office, Owen Gray in our San Francisco office, or other partners in the Novogratic office near you. And finally, in case you missed it, last week the Treasury Department published a notice alerting the public that it will accept comments through September 18th on CDFI Form 0019. Now, what's CDFI Form 0019, you might ask? That's the CDE Certification Application. As you know, new market tax credit applicants must be certified as CDEs to apply for an allocation of tax credit authority, and that's the application due by August 3rd, as mentioned earlier. In case you're wondering how many CDEs have been certified by the CDFI Fund, over 5,600. 5,649 to be exact. Right now, no changes are being proposed to the application form. However, the comment request is a procedural requirement that the Treasury Department must satisfy under the Paper Reduction Act. So, if you'd like to submit comments about the application form, you can find details about how to do that in the Federal Register Notice. And that notice is posted online at www.newmarketscredits.com. In local housing tax credit news, a report last week suggests that as policymakers discuss reforming home ownership tax expenditures as part of tax reform, Congress should consider directing a modest share of the savings from those reforms to a new federal renters tax credit program. This report is from the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities. The report is entitled Renters Tax Credit Would Promote Equity and Advance Balanced Housing Policy. The report says that even though renters make up one out of every three households, federal spending on housing disproportionately favors home ownership, and they have numbers that suggest that that disproportionality is 75% of all housing expenditures go to home ownership. This proposed renter's credit would help balance federal housing policy and ensure that rental assistance reaches more moderate and low-income families, the center says. The program would be administered, as they've designed it so far, by states and would be implemented through a public-private partnership with property owners, much like the federal low-income housing tax credit. Families that received a tax credit certificate would generally pay no more than 30% of their income toward rent for a modest unit of the family's choice. The tax credit certificate would make up the difference between that 30% and market rent. Alternatively, States would be able to enter into agreements allocating credits directly to particular property owners. An owner could then either claim the credit based on the rent reduction provided or pass the credit through to the bank that holds the mortgage on the property in a return for reduction in mortgage payments. The center estimates that if the program were capped at just $5 billion, it could assist 1.2 million of the lowest income households and reduce each household's monthly rent by an average of $400. The renter's credit would complement the federal low-income tax credit in Section 8 programs. 
and states could target the credits to address their particular housing priorities. For example, states could use it to enable low-income seniors or people with disabilities to live in service-enriched developments rather than nursing homes or other institutions. For more information on the proposed federal renters tax credit, you can download the report at www.cbpp.org. And if you want to read my initial thoughts on the proposal, check out my blog at novogradic.wordpress.com, and you'll see the posting. If you have comments on it, I'd appreciate you sharing those comments directly there on my blog. Well, that brings me to the end of this week's report. Please join me again next week for another Tax Credit Tuesday. This is Michael Novogradic, and I'll be back next week. Thanks for listening. This weekly podcast has been brought to you by Novogratik and Company, LLP. Archive discussions are available online at www.novoco.com slash podcast or by subscribing to the Novogratik Report on tax credits in iTunes. Novogratik and Company, LLP is a national certified public accounting and consulting firm with 13 offices nationwide. Learn more about our professional services at www.novoco.com.